Hello, Tim. How's it going? Uh, it's going all right. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. Kind of feel like, uh, well, is there much hope? Is there, is there any point, David? In Yes. I mean, what's I the point of life? Is. What is the point of life? Your own happiness. Oh, is that right? Right. Yeah. What's so great about happiness? happiness when you feel it, you'll know. It's pretty oh. great. All right. I'll go out and take a hit of heroin then. <laughs> Much happiness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you you said you've been working on an article on male suicide and, and your re the reasons you think the rates are going up and that kind of stuff. So I'm definitely interested. I think it's an important topic and I'm definitely interested in it. Um, so why don't you start off on where you're thinking, why you think, why you wanted to write an article on this? Right. Well, I mean, it's, I don't know why, but for some, for some reason I've been seeing all these articles lately, um, about male suicide, the problem of male suicide, and they almost all piss me off and make me want to kill myself, to be honest. <laughs> no, yeah. that's a bad joke, you know, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> But there is some truth to it because it makes me almost feel like it's hopeless. Like people, mm. you know, they just don't get it. They just don't get why male suicides on the right. Like I hear things like, well, males have been um, been enculturated to hold their feelings in. Right. We're told as little boys, don't cry. Uh, it's because uh, mental health is stigmatized or mental illness is stigmatized and people are afraid of of uh, speaking up. Uh, we were told, you know, one article said that we need more safe spaces for men. And if we just had more safe spaces, maybe we could stop this epidemic of suicide. Um, you know, meanwhile, a guy just blew his brains out on the steps of our le provincial legislature. They had to shut down uh, the legislature uh, for this guy who blew his brains out. Um, and, you know, none, none of those articles are, or sentiments that I'm reading, uh, you know, and I hear it, I hear the same damn thing all the time in um in my profession that, you know, we need, we need more resources. Anytime there's tragedy, anytime one of my colleagues kills themselves or they're struggling or they dealing with, you know, whatever, um, it's always because we're lacking in resources. We need more mental health resources. Never mind that we have about, you know, I think we counted up once like about 12 different support, uh, resources from, peer support where we have a group of just guys on the floor that are saying, Hey, you ever need to talk? I'm here to one-on-one uh, -on -one therapy to, um, you know, our own like, uh, department chaplain to like, you know, the problem with the theory of safe spaces and talking and stigmatization and all that stuff is that stigmatization has never been lower. Uh, the ability to talk and the encouragement to talk has never been higher. Um, and we, we've never had, uh, I guess, less stress in a stressful field, right? Like mm. acuity levels of calls are going down at the same time we have more resources to bring to bear on calls, right? So this idea that, that we're haunted by, uh, the horrific things we see on, in our line of work and that we're continually stressed to the max and all the, that those, none of those things hold true because all those things are getting better at the same time. Our mental health is getting worse. 
Right. So, so I just do not buy all these theories. And, and I mean, there's some truth to some of this stuff, right? Like the, the fact that, yeah, we, we are encouraged as males to be more stoic, to, to hold it in to, um, whatever. And, and maybe that's a bad thing. You know, I, I certainly have had my struggles with, with, uh, mental health in the past because of my profession. Um, and talking to a therapist certainly helped, mm-hmm. but it, I, what I realized was that, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the the nature of my job that was causing the, me to have mental health problems. It was the story that my culture was telling me. It was, in other right. words, it was how I was thinking about my job. You know, when I started in this profession, I remember one of my first shifts. Um, <laughs> we we were we responded to this fire. Um, it, it was like a little shack out in the middle in this rural Alberta area. It was a hermit's shack. And it was fully engulfed. You know, there's obviously no going in and rescuing anyone. So we just poured water on it and hoped that no one was home. As the smoke cleared and the firefighting came to an end, um, we noticed there was a, a, a body in the rubble. And as the junior guy, it was my job to go in and get this, remove this body, right? So I geared up mm-hmm. and went in. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a horrific sight. It was the, the, the guy was basically a skull and a torso, like his limbs had been burnt off. He was just all exposed and charred internal organs. There was no skin on him except on his butt and his lower back that had been on the ground. He was stuck to the, stuck to the, um, to the ground because of, of the being cooked, I guess, or whatever. So I had to get a, a, a pry bar, uh, a pike pole uh, and, and pry him up off the ground. And I remember as I pried him up the back of his skull, popped out and all his soupy brains fell out the back of his skull. And at the same time, I caught a whiff of charred human remains and I started like heaving. Right. And it took me a couple yeah. minutes to compose myself. And I'm like, fuck. And then I, I went back, <laughs> like, I pried him up and I got him in that body bag and, you know, a partner came and helped me drag him out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just, it was gross and it was kind of horrific. Right. And, and yeah. you know, on the way back to, the station, my partner, uh, or one of the, one of the, my, my mentor, I guess, noticed that I was pretty pale and I was quiet and he's like, and, and this guy was an old grizzled vet. Right. And he looked at me and he goes, first crispy critter kid. And I'm like, uh, and I, and I just started laughing involuntarily. I just thought it was such an irreverent thing to say. And I was, you know, kind of mortified. And, and then he like doubled down on, on the dark humor. And he's like, Hey, you guys feel like barbecue ribs for lunch. And I'm, I'm, part of me was mortified, but part of me was in awe that the whole crew was laughing about this horrific thing yeah. that we just saw. Right. And he took me aside afterwards and he, he said, look, you know, I, that, that was a rough call, uh, to go on. And you know, what, what you experienced was normal. Like it's, it's normal to feel like puking and, you know, yeah. but you know, you took a minute to compose yourself and you got the job done. Good job, kid. And then he, he, he's, he went on to explain, you know, we have very inappropriate humor, very dark humor in these private spaces. Um, we, we never take that out of these private spaces, but this helps us, um, helps us cope with our job. Like if, if we just sat here and dwelled on the horror of our job, you're going to burn out. So you have to find a way to distance yourself from these calls. And, and 
what I realized later is that he was teaching me sort of a clinical detachment to my work, right? So rather than looking at my work as a tragedy that that would paralyze you, <laughs> he, he this detachment was causing me to look at the chaos as a complex problem to be solved and confronted, right? And, and an interesting thing to deal with, like, okay, how am I going to deal with this? And how am I going to get over this, uh, this involuntary response I'm having? And like, that that was the mindset. And so that first year on the job with these guys uh, was awesome. Like I couldn't wait to go to work and it, and you know, we were going into more horrific situations throughout that year and, and it was a challenge and we couldn't wait to confront it. And, and we, and I felt awesome because here I am competently dealing with this challenge. Right now, cut mm -hmm. to three years later, when I graduate from, from uh, paramedic training for my advanced care paramedic. And now I'm operating at the highest level with a very progressive organization. And we're hearing about this latest trend in EMS and, and in emergency services uh, called critical incident stress management, right? And so critical incident stress was this boogeyman that was behind every corner of every call. It was reaching out to grab us and destroy our mental health and, and, and punish us. Um, and the first time I was exposed to this, the reality of this was, you know, one of my first calls as a new advanced care paramedic with all these skills and all this training, we had a mass casualty incident, a multi-vehicle pileup on the highway and uh, multiple people dead, multiple people seriously injured. Our resources were overwhelmed and so we had to triage and we had to manage the chaos and it was difficult and we knocked it out of the park as far as I was concerned. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, on the way back to the station, I'm hearing, okay, we were guys, uh, mandatory debrief, um, at station one, uh, all units, uh, meet there once you're cleaned up. And so I'm like, awesome. We're going to get uh, like high five each other, talk about all the ways we kicked ass, talk about all the ways we could improve. And, um, <laughs> and, and so I walked into the debriefing room all smiles and, uh, and enthusiasm. And then I looked around me and I realized I'd walked into basically a funeral home. It was like, um, everyone, you know, everyone was dour faced and looking seriously. The facilitator, um, was like, you know, Oh yeah, come on in guys, come on in, like have a seat. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, Oh damn, I, I think I have, the wrong attitude here that's right. totally inappropriate right and and as the they went around the circle and got everyone to share their feelings about what they were feeling as a result of that call they were all negative feelings and i realized shit yeah i'm i'm i shouldn't be feeling positive about this i mean christ uh people died and their families and like this is this is inappropriate. I, I, what kind of monster am I for right. feeling this way? And so by the time it got around to me, I was genuinely upset by the call because I was thinking about the family and I was thinking about if I were in their shoes, how would I be feeling right now? And how would I be feeling about this paramedic who's so cavalier about it? And yeah. I'm like, damn you, Bob and company for teaching me this, this cavalier attitude to, to, uh, yeah. Yes. Right. And, and, and now, um, so that first year as an advanced care paramedic, um, I, I, I'm now walking around with this new mental frame that, that this culture put in me. And, um, 
few months later, I had like three kids in very rap, like within the a month period, die uh, in the back of the my ambulance, basically. And there's nothing I could do about it. And it gutted me. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I went home and hit the bottle. I, I was seeing flashbacks of uh, of that those kids' faces. I couldn't sleep. Uh, you know, I couldn't look at my own kids or connect with them because all I saw was dead kids couldn't talk mm-hmm. to my wife about it. she didn't understand I had anxiety about going to work I almost quit my profession I had thoughts of suicide and um and, and so how did that happen how did these calls that once I couldn't wait to get out of bed and go do these calls now become you know this same calls triggering a response in me that one that made me think about suicide and uh, the answer is the culture, right? The, the ideas that, that I bought into that were propagated by the culture around me, that, that I was a victim, that I was helpless, that, you know. And so it was one therapy session and one question in that therapy session that basically cured my PTSD and my suicidal ideations. And, you know, I was going on and on about how I couldn't save lives. Um, how there was nothing I could do, how I didn't bring any value to the, these calls. In, in other words, I was just kind of wallowing in my helplessness, fixating mm-hmm. all the things that I had absolutely no power over, right? There, there was no, no medical technology that existed at the time that could have saved these kids' lives, no practitioner, no, you know, they, they just had catastrophic uh, issues. And, and, and the, the therapist, I remember, I, I thank, I'm very thankful I had this therapist because another therapist might have just encouraged me to keep talking about my feelings, right? And just keep right. keep regurgitating and then giving me a few tools to deal, deal with those theories and manage them. Like take some deep breaths. Okay, next time you're thinking about this thing, take a walk. Like let's build some management things to help you manage, yeah. right? But this guy just stopped me and he said, wait, wait a second, Tim. I'm having a difficult time buying what you just said he said you're telling me in all seriousness that you didn't provide any value on those calls right so nothing to do with feelings here just he's checking my assumptions uh, about (laughs) that that he noticed right and that stopped me and i had to think objectively about this and and realize that no i definitely provided value on those calls because i remember each parent hugged me afterwards and I thought, you know, if I were in those parents' shoes, I would have wanted me on that call because I was a very competent paramedic. I was doing everything possible. I was explaining to them what was going on and what I was doing and what I thought was happening to their kid. You know, and when we got to the hospital, I explained to them uh, what they were doing and how, you know, everyone was like that, that, that we're, everyone was doing exactly what they should be to try to save their kid's life. And when it didn't work out, they hugged me afterwards. But I would want someone like that. I wouldn't want to have the burden of having to deal with this kid and like deal with the emotions and try to figure out the chaos and, and outsourcing that in in that time of crisis to a very competent person was a real load off. So I realized, yeah, uh, and, and, and I had an epiphany in that moment that I had been thinking about my profession the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I was I was focused in on everything I couldn't control. And I had zero regard for the things I could control, all the ways I brought value to the call, the way I talked to pay, pay, you know, and, and so, um, that, that switched off all those symptoms for me. And, you know, since then I, I, I feel like the calls I go on, the very stressful ones, the more stressful, the better, 
because it makes me a better person. It's a bigger opportunity for growth. And, yeah. and, and, and so now how I relate this to male suicide is this is kind of a long way, right. long story of, of trying to get to where I'm going with this. Yeah. Is, if is you that, don't mind, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, jump in and try and, I'll try and relate it. Cause I mean, no, I think you're like, it's almost a romantic example in your case, right? This is a severely intense profession, like, you know, really graphic, gruesome stuff, and you have these deep feelings around it. But I think it is directly applicable to a lot of people generally. And I think a couple of things that come to mind, the first is, yes, it's great that you had an actual useful therapist, right? Because a lot of therapists would say, oh, no, just you're actually feeling the right feelings. You have to process it and learn how to just carry those feelings as heavy as they are and things like that. And that's what one of the things you said is, that yeah adding more resources doesn't help if the resources are bad and i know yeah. that there are just terrible therapists terrible psychologists who perpetuate the complete wrong mentality and so just talking to people doesn't necessarily help right and so just throwing more money at it doesn't necessarily help and when you go to something like safe spaces and places to talk that's the same thing, right? A safe space is someone who can be whatever they are and there's no right way. So you're not wrong because you think it was a good call and these sorts of things. And when it comes to like males generally, they're being told they're not, their more natural reaction to things are wrong, right? Across the board, we're being told that no, we should be more emotional. Yes, we can be, but we don't have to be. But also it's like, I mean, it's, as if we shouldn't be happy to have challenges. We should be, it's not just in your field, it's in any field. We should be more sad about the state of the world and oh, don't focus on your production, focus on how uh, miserable other people are and just, oh, the world's ending and, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's just pushed across the board. And in particular then, what seems to be men's average coping mechanisms are also deemed wrong. You can't yes. joke about it. It's insensitive. You can't um, whatever else, right? Like there's just so much stuff about maleness that is yeah. deemed wrong. So it's like they're throwing an infinite amount of garbage at our faces saying how miserable the world is. And then also saying, oh, but by the way, your co normal coping, coping mechanisms are wrong. Use our coping mechanisms. And by the way, you're useless to get out of this cycle. And that's right. the message that's basically being sold to everyone, it seems. Yeah, and it, it's even, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's it's like, okay, men need to talk more about this. But when we talk about it the way that we want to talk about it, by making dark, humorous jokes that help us cultivate clinical detachment, that that uh, make a, put us in the, the mental frame that helps us competently deal with things which in turn builds up our confidence and our resilience and our anti-fragility and makes us stronger versions of ourselves well that's wrong right so so mm -hmm. we can't come back from calls really anymore and and high five and and make dark like hr would ha have a conniption if anyone complained we we have to be sensitive to the fact that someone in our group uh might have been triggered by that call right. so we definitely cannot 
celebrate it, right? We can't do the things that build up anti-fragility. And in fact, officers are required to go around to everyone and say, okay, just so you know, we do have these resources available. That was a tough call if you need to talk to anyone. But so, so they're talking about these calls as if they are uh, threats to our mental health. When in and fact, it what if, what, the... and, and what the way it used to be was they were opportunities to improve our mental health, right? That's yeah. how they were looked at. It was like, okay, how can we get better? You know, our, my mental health improves when I am able to uh, deal with all these negative emotions and channel them and use them and, and, um, you know, and be competent despite them. And that actually builds me up and, and makes me even more resilient. And, and so that pathway is essentially cut off from practitioners now, uh, we, yeah. you know, we have to think about ourselves as fragile or, or even at least resilient, right? And and it's even in the way we talk about it. Like I remember uh, a paramedic uh, a few years ago killed himself, um, and, and his wife in the newspaper said, "Depression made his choice for him." And and I just thought, oh my God, this is th this message. This is the message we're sending our practitioners that they're completely helpless in the face of these things. Yes, I was depressed, and yes, in one sense, you could say that if I killed myself, that depression made my choice for me. But the choice about how I thought about my job is what led to my my depression, mm -hmm. and it was it was cured with one question, one epiphany, one realization that my assumption was just wrong. Right. And and, <laughs> and and even to say the depression makes the choice, that's wrong. Right. Like I was severely depressed and I contemplated suicide and I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. There is nothing else. This even this misery is better than nothingness. Right. But it's OK. Why then you have to if you actually make that decision, I'm not going to do that. You have to figure out, OK, why am I thinking the way? Why is life miserable? right? It doesn't seem miserable for everyone. Why is it miserable? What What is my thinking? And you can even like, if you just start to observe things rationally and logically, you can see that things aren't the way you think they are. But to say, I don't like the idea that even at some point, depression makes the choice for you. But I, I do think it's important to highlight what you said. It's that depression is a later stage thing. Some, a colleague of mine actually said that, that the, the amount of people that are depressed now is actually showing that their bodies are working well because their mind is saying there is something severely wrong with your way in the world. There is something right. you're doing wrong. And yeah. so it's actually to recognize, okay, no, I should be depressed. Why am I depressed? How do yeah. I get out of it? Because yeah. there are so many people who are not living honestly, who are consistently doing things they don't believe in, and then their body gets reacts right the same right. way if you're feeding yourself junk food if you're smoking cigarettes every day you your body reacts and so right. i think we have to view depression as yeah it's uh you know it's your immune system it's your mind saying there is something going wrong and then we have to start figuring out okay what is going wrong right right exactly yeah and 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 rather than the the approach that that we take is to hand out SSRIs like candy and say okay this will just numb make, it right make you feel better right and um yeah it does you know it's kind of like taking morphine for a toothache yeah it makes a toothache right. feel better but you you're not dealing with the underlying issue right if you think that that morphine is doing something about your 
your your uh, toothache. It's not. It's taking the, numbing the pain momentarily. That may be a good thing, and it may be necessary to take SSRIs just so that you can, um, so so that you're not constantly inundated with that. But that should be a temporary thing. To, right. while you deal with the root cause of that depression, right? And and it's almost always, um, in, in my, in, well, in my case, I, I shouldn't say it's almost all, I, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a mental health expert, um, but in my case, it was just a faulty assumption that was causing yeah. my, my my depression, my suicidality, right? And um, yeah, and, and you so the list goes on, right? And, and so, you know, in my profession, we, we don't have the same rite of passage anymore. We talked about this in a previous episode yeah. um, where where we manufacture some adversity for new guys so that, that they the have a chance to build up resilience. Ever, right? And it's also, yeah, the first thing they ever face then. If you're not allowed right. to kind of razz them and stuff, they're, they've opted into this profession. They have a vague idea of what it is. They don't face any... Uh, growth with their coworkers, and then they have to face an oozing body leaking into the onto the ground, and that's the first thing they have to face. And then they're told, "Oh, by the way, you're a useless person that's just trying to make this as least bad as possible. Yeah, you should feel miserable." Yeah, and yeah. then it's like, "Oh, I wonder why they're depressed." Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, you know, and so now, now if we we take my microcosm where this mm. kind of vi victim mentality is is propagated and and where we're taught to to ruminate on all the things we can't control and on how helpless we are and you spread that out over the rest of society you could see that what what we're experiencing in my profession is just a kind of a concentrated bit of what we're seeing everywhere else in the world really where where we are constantly inundated with this victim mentality and it's all about safe spaces and it's all about you know trigger warnings and it's all about um uh you, you know and, and you you see that people that play the victim and talk about all the ways that they're oppressed seem to seem to benefit from that narrative and get all this attention and resources and whatnot and there's some of that then that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly true in our profession. I mean, anytime there's a tragedy, you see people jumping on it for resources, right? Unions say, we need more resources. Management, you're not doing enough. Um, the the uh, paramedic associations or the first responders associations say, government, we need more resources. We need studies. We need, like, people are dying here and you guys aren't doing enough. And it it's because you're not doing enough that people are dying, right? Yeah. And so, so government's like, oh yeah, well. And, and then the politicians get to look good by coming in and handing all this money down to feed the victim industrial complex. And you know, the people that are the victims benefit from that. So, so you're incentivized to be a victim. It feels good to be a victim in a lot of ways uh, because you yeah, do get, you get this taken attention. care of, right? Yeah. And, and I, I kind of felt good when I was a victim because my employer was like, oh, okay, like we need to get you to therapy and take all the time you need. And, you yeah. know, and my colleagues were looking at me a particular way and, you know, that attention kind of felt good in a way, right? See, I hated it when I was depressed and I was struggling through, I hated the way people were treating me. And like, I posted publicly about right. mental health issues. And then they, then it was like they it felt like they wanted me to be the victim, right? right? Like the culture was so ready for more of that and I hated it. Like I could feel that they wanted to pull me into that role, 
right? right? And so it was very difficult actually to try and s admit the problems while staying confident in any sense. And so mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope as soon as you say, oh no. And I think, you know, potentially that part, that actually contributes to the stigma in a different way. It's not that people are like, oh, you have a mental health issue. It's like, you have a mental health issue, right? right? And so it's like, if you admit it, you start slipping down. Yeah, I also yeah. think it's important to notice, note with respect to like male suicide rates, and I don't know if white males in particular have a higher suicide rate as well, but it's all of this victim mentality and everyone's a victim, everyone's sad and, and miserable. And by the way, straight white men, you're the cause of it. And right. so no matter how bad your life is, you're the cause of everyone else's misery. You can't complain and the world would be better off without less with less straight white men. And then what do you think people are going to do? They actually believe if they take it at the word of the culture, yeah, kill themselves. The world's better off without me. I'm miserable. I'm making more yeah. people miserable. I don't see how people then get surprised uh, when this is the solution people come to. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, there, there's something to be said about not having connection and and people that care about you and all that kind of thing as well. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I don't I don't I just want to put a caveat or a pin here in in the fact that I'm talking about a theory about why suicide is on the rise, right? And, and how mm -hmm. culture contributes to that. And what I'm not talking about is, you know, suicide is an age-old thing, and there are yeah. multi variant reasons why people might kill themselves mm -hmm. certainly not for the reasons I'm that, that that I was thinking about killing myself there there are many other reasons that are probably you know that this current culture has nothing to do with but yeah. yet we see suicide on the rise at the same time we see this victim mentality on the rise and in my experience that is they are correlated and they are connected uh together right yeah. so so that's all we're talking about here um yeah and and you know and then then you look at groups like um you know and, and when we did that video on uh incels and MGTOW and mm -hmm. um pickup artists i did that ma with, with manuel i had a few <laughs> comments in this in the youtube that that exemplified that victim mentality perfectly it was like oh you're just telling us to man up tim that's it. Like the world's against us. We're victims basically. And you're just all you can say. And you're, you're giving uh, prom promiscuous women more sympathy than you're giving men. Here is a whole hour dedicated to sympathizing with men's plight and talking about ways they can get out from the underworld, from someone who's been there, who's from someone, by the way, who has but been experienced the all the things that they complain about in MGTOW communities, getting sperm jacked, having you being used as a resource object have been financially devastated, being cut off from my kids, all these things. And yet I pulled myself out from under that. So here's an opportunity to get it. But, but these guys are just stuck in this victim mentality, right? Involuntarily celibate. Well, you just, yeah. I, I but mean, that's you, why it's not enough sympathy because the mentality of the culture is right. you can't get out of it. 
right? So you're not supposed to tell them that they can get themselves out of this situation because right. that's wrong and that's not sympathetic. Exactly. You have to tell them that their situation is miserable. They're right that they're in that situation and it's miserable. And all they can do is bear the burden right. as strongly as possible. So that's yeah. where it comes from. Is and, and the narrative I hear over and over again is the only way my life can get better is if the whole world changes, right? Right. And that's complete and utter bullshit, right? And that, that's why men are killing themselves. It's because they're buying into their this victim narrative. This is why suicides are on the rise, because men didn't used to be this way. It didn't used to be everything was hopeless for men, right. you know? And, uh, the, and, degree they had, and I think, I mean, the victim mentality is also because... I mean, I do want to pull it back to the growing state and statism because you can be taken care of. Oh, you have more issues. We'll just give you more resources. Right. And there's no need to be responsible for yourself. So it's not only that they think they have to change the world. They think someone else can take care of them and change them for them or give them the resources and what they need. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And, and again, it's fi fixating on all the things that you can't control as a person and ignoring all the things, little things that add up to a lot that you can control. Right. And this is where the Jordan Peterson comes in right. and says, clean your room. That's something you can do right now. Right. Can't clean your room, tidy up your desk a little bit. Can't if you, mm -hmm. if you, that feels too overwhelming. See that pencil. Can you put it in its pencil holder? Right. Uh, you in, can do that. Right. I, that, <laughs> there's, I read the book, the happiness advantage. And so it talks about the Zorro circle. And it's like, yeah, no, not a whole desk. Draw like a circle on your desk. Make sure that is perfectly clean and in order for a week. Then expand right. it. And only once you master your Zorro circle, start expanding. But people try and also then, like the other problem is that people do drift so far off. And so like when I finally reconciled myself um, and started to face myself, I had made a mess of my life. And it was very scary to say, okay, either I have to fix all of this or not. And, and so it is very daunting when you start to say, I'm going to put my life together. I'm going to get my room in order. It is very scary to do that, but the end, but, and it, there's no messages saying you can, it's worthwhile. Right? right. And, and that's why it's so scary. But the thing is you can, right. You can slowly and surely, get your life back in order, no matter how far uh, you seem or you think you've drifted. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, some, some of the other criticisms I often hear when I talk about this is that like, these are involuntary responses people have to the trauma that they are exposed to, right? That there's involuntary responses. You can't control that. And yada, yada, again, trying to suck me into this victim mentality, but the, and there, there's, it's true. There is involuntary responses you have, right? So, um, you know, I w was almost killed in a hoarder's house in a basement fire. That was a turning point in my life. And, and you know, it, it was the best day of my life in a lot of ways because I became a different person by facing the realization that I was going to die, right? Memento mori. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so now I still have involuntary responses as a result of that experience. Um, like mm. I'll, I'll be in a particular situation and all of a sudden I'll have that flashback and that panic rise up in me. That'll take me right back to when I knew I was going to die. And, and 
I, I was going to lose everything. I love my kids, you know, and, I, you know, just the amount of regret. It was just it, so it's deeply embedded in my nervous system now, this moment in my life. Now, I can choose to look at that as a traumatic event that debilitates me and that panic as something bad. But I can't control that first involuntary response, but I can control every thought I have about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thought I have about it is that this is a my body reminding me of the best day of my life when good things started to happen for me, when I started to line up with my life's purpose. And and I start kicking ass at that moment. Right. I yeah. convert that panic and that feeling into excitement, into energy, into ass kicking juice. Um, and, and, and it I, fuels me and I perform at a higher level. And so if I had a different mental frame about that, it would debilitate me. It would break right. me down. It would cause me to withdraw from the situation. It would cause me to ask my employer for resources and time off and all these other things. Right. Um, so and I think that's the most important thing in any of this is like people have more control over the, their mindset than they realize and mm -hmm. whatever is going on, they choose how to look at it or not. And so many people are choosing to look only at the horrific, the horrible, and not at anything positive, not to have a positive framework. And then they say, oh, I can't help it. But no, you can help it. And you can look at things positively and create positive feedback loops. Right. Another thing from the happiness advantage is this idea of counterfacts. And so your mind generally, when something happens, your mind creates context around it. Oh, it could have been this or it could have been that. So the example is, okay, you're at a bank, there's 50 people, someone comes to rob it and you get shot in the shoulder. Is it good luck or bad luck, right? And whatever context you create around that, oh, well, I got shot out of all 50 people, that's bad luck. Right. Or thank God no one died, thank God I didn't die, that's good luck. And mm. both of those are valid contexts that don't actually exist. And you can actually train your brain to start thinking more positively, to start having positive counterfacts and just viewing things in that light. Yep. And it's not lying to yourself because it's literally just there's an infinite things that didn't happen. Right. So you want to look at things in a good light. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the message I want to make sure I'm driving home here. Or, or the message I'm hoping people aren't picking up here is that it's bad to talk about these things. It's bad to talk about your feelings. It's bad to, you know, therapy is, is, is causing this or blah, blah, blah. It no. was a therapist that pulled me out of this. Right. And, and what I'm arguing for yeah. is the right kind of talk, the right kind of therapy, the, the yeah. getting rid of the demonization of the kind of talk that leads to mental resilience and, and anti-fragility. Right. I, I, I would be very, cautious and tentative about sharing my experiences and talking about my mental health journey anywhere in my profession, because I'd be worried about the negative reaction and the repercussions it might have for me at work and all those kinds of things. Right. And that ought yeah. to tell you a lot about because the culture. They don't think you're coping with it the right way. You shouldn't be feeling good well, that and, you're and, competent and it's and... not even that that what i would worry about is people uh pulling the message from my my experience of oh just man up right like the the same messages right. i got under that youtube video we did uh about oh just tell us to man up oh yeah we're like we're not victims and you know like we're not being oppressed and blah 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 like the, the, the problem is that there's there's 
certain there's truth to the victim narrative, right? I mean, yeah. uh, like if you want to enumerate all the ways you're a victim and you're oppressed, yeah, the list is probably endless. Right. Like you, there's no, li you know, and so, you know, it's difficult to counter, counter those arguments um, other than to, you know, to, to talk. It is a little, but it, I mean, from, you might disagree, but from my opinion, it is a little bit of the traditional man up, but it's not like, it is, oh, yeah. don't talk about, it's no, own yourself, be in, take control of your life, which is some of the association with man up. So it's like, um, I agree that, you know, people are sensitive to that term term or whatever, right. but it is partially well, that. And that, should, and that should tell you something too, right? You're right. What, why not man up? What, what's yeah, wrong? Like there are good up? traits. Exactly. <laughs> like, right. As so, if, as if manning up is a bad thing. Should we female up then? Is that because that's what it seems like everyone wants us to do. It wants us to, right. to, you know, <laughs> engage but in. But when I say man up, yeah, it's not like it, the, the connotation is don't talk about your feelings. Don't like just repress things. No, that's not whatever. At any point in time, that's not what good proper men did. Right. Right. Men need to own themselves, be confident in themselves, be confident in their ability to handle situations and be honest with themselves when they're having emotions, when they're feeling things. And, and it's a holistic thing, but mm. it's just not encouraged. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, like it, it, that's exactly it. Like it's not about repressing your feelings or pushing them to a side. It's like listening to them and tell what do they mean? That depression means you're having an existential crisis that your that you your life philosophy is not is wrong is not is wrong and your brain knows right? it <laughs> and, and so you need yeah. to do some thinking about that and and line up your behaviors and your life philosophy together and that depression in my experience will go away um mm -hmm. and you know are you angry okay what's that telling you are you sad what's that telling you it's telling you that that some need isn't being met right and that and and then rather than putting that on everyone else uh imagine that you fully own that right? That you own all your emotions and the triggers that cause them. What is that trigger? How did, where's that coming from? What is the story in my head that's causing that trigger? It's not what she just said that, that is causing this emotion. She triggered something, but I own that trigger and I therefore right. own that emotion and I own the story around that trigger. What is that story? Let's deconstruct that. And that's where all the growth happens. Yeah. And, and that's how a man deals with stuff. That's what man up means. It's like, it's like radical ownership, self-ownership, right? Rather than having everyone else own your stuff. Oh, you, you microaggressed against me by saying that, right? Uh, right. That, that removes from you the opportunity for growth for, for mental health, because mental health comes from self-reflection and, um, your behaviors and everything you own. Uh, it doesn't come from other people. And so right. they're, they're, if you say they're causing me to feel this way, what you're saying is uh, they're responsible for my mental health. I am completely powerless over my own mental health here. And, and that's, that's just the prevailing narrative everywhere, right? right? Like that everyone is triggerable. We have to be politically correct. We can't even whisper something in case someone five miles away hears it and all yeah. of this stuff. And I think it's important to note that the sooner you start having this mentality, anyone, the easier it is because that's what... To, the really bad depression, the really like suicidal tendencies and these sorts of things come from all of that. Emo it's a dam, right? It, it bursts through and then you have 10 years worth of sad moments all hitting you at once.
and and you can be yeah. sad for months without understanding why because it's literally just the dam breaking your body still knows it You're frozen, David. I can't can't hear you. So we got we got cut off there, but I I was just saying that like yes, it is tough and all of these things do come at once if you don't face them but even if that's the case you can still face them and and people can work through it and i want to assure anyone like i was almost suicidal you were su or almost suicidal as well and and we're saying that these things can be worked through you do have the strength to do it no matter how scary it feels at any point in time yeah no that's absolutely right and and you know you you and, and there's help out there too, right? Like you, you don't have to do this alone. There are other people that have gone through this. You can, um, you can drop me a line uh, if you want to talk. Tim.moen at me.com. We'll put the 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 my email and and link in the bottom. And you could also sign up for my newsletter, which talks about um, male fragility and anti fragility and and some of the things we can do. If you want to keep up to date with that, you can go to timmo uh, um, and, and drop, drop me a line. I'm sure it's, it's the same with you, David. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and by all means, please, uh, contact a mental health professional, call a suicide line, you know, get, get help. Um, you know, it, it I needed help to get pulled out of this and, and hopefully you get the right kind of help and are as lucky as I was to get the right kind of therapist that can challenge yeah. your assumptions and the way you're thinking. Cause usually our feelings are a result of the way we're thinking. And if we can clear up our way of thinking about things, um, those feelings and all the thoughts then that come attached with those feelings uh, that muddy your head up and cause you to think terrible things can get cleared up. All right, thanks, Tim. Thanks, David.